0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book under the title of the form of sound words and we are considering today the use in the scriptures of the word body. Now the word body is used outside the scriptures. Uh, we read of the body politic. Or we may speak of a book and we say now the body of this work is and speak about its most essential feature. And it is used in the Scriptures as over against a shadow. The Apostle speaking to the Colossians, he said, Don't let anyone judge you with regard to ceremonials, meats and drinks, Sabbath days and all the once necessary observances under the Law of Moses. For they are a shadow of good things to come. The body is of Christ. Now, that's nothing to do with the body of Christ. That is to say, the substance, the reality is found in Christ. Well, if you reach that position, well, then you're not going to go back to the weak and beggarly elements. You're not going back to all the ceremonials which could never touch the conscience, never enlighten the eyes, never take away sin, but only point it to him. We say, well, we reached him. Therefore, Christ is the substance. And then we have the word body used in its ordinary everyday term, the human body that we have, body of flesh and blood, as we have in, uh, say, the Epistle to the Hebrews it says the children being partakers of flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same and in Hebrews ten he said a body hast thou prepared me and we are perfected and sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all so that to see the word body has various connotations different applications and it's one of the failings on the part of some teachers that just because the word happens to come somewhere in the Bible, that means it means the same thing anywhere else. Well, you couldn't read an ordinary book like that. You'd have to have its context. And without the context, the word is just a sound. So that we are going to look now at the body. I don't need to turn you to chapter and verse all the time, uh, but our Saviour used it in the Sermon on the Mount, the things which have to do with the body, uh, something to eat, something to wear. So he used it like that. And then it comes in the hope of the church when he says now in the resurrection, I cannot answer you how the dead are raised up, he said, or with what body they come. I should have to be God himself to be able to describe that mighty miracle. But he said, I'm due throwing it back on you. Uh, the apostle, of course, could speak a bit more plainly than I can to people. He said, thou fool. Now, I couldn't say that because I'm in that category myself. But he said, you see, you're, you're uh, sort of boggling over how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Well, you don't even know how God raises a seed up to a plant and the plant produces the ear and the full grain in the ear just as that and the same sort as was put in the ground. Do you understand that? You know it's true. But he also added these words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, don't spiritualize the resurrection away. Don't spiritualize it. He says there is a spiritual body as well as a natural body. Now, we can't understand perhaps what a spiritual body will be like. I don't think you've got to imagine a sort of a a transparent body that you can see right through it. I mean, you've seen fish in an aquarium. Uh, Well, I don't think we're going to be like that. But we don't know, you see. We don't know. But we have this consolation. That whether we can imagine it or not, God has predestinated that every redeemed child of He shall one day be conformed to the image of his Son. And then, with regard to our own calling in Philippians chapter 3, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for a Saviour, who shall transfigure this body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory. Isn't that good enough? I think so. If we shall all be astounded and look one another up and down in that day and say, I never thought of that, did you know? The scripture says, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of man, the things which God hath prepared for hit them that love him. So we'll leave that part of it out. If you're disappointed that I can't explain these things to you, well, I can only go so far as a book takes, and I can't even go as far as that. There's so much here that uh, we shall have to always feel we've been beaten by it. We come a little bit nearer to our own uh calling. We know that the church in Ephesians, as we read just now, is called the body of Christ, and he is the head over all things to that body, and that body is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now that's a very wonderful position to attain. And then somebody comes along and says, Oh no, he says, You're making the mistake. I read about this body in one Corinthians twelve. And 1 Corinthians 12 was written and took place even before the 28th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, before Paul became a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Therefore, consequences, you're altogether wrong, and where are we now? So shall we look at 1 Corinthians 12. Now, suppose we plunge straight into one Corinthians twelve, and we read in verse thirteen: "For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body." You say, there oh, you are. That's enough for me. Yes, all right. But what's chapter twelve all about? Well, I say I don't know. I've got a general idea. Well, the apostle has told you, and you're not bothered to let him tell you what he's going to write about. Oh, yes. Look at the first verse. Isn't that strange? What tremendous powers of observation we must have to look at the 31st verse of a chapter when he starts talking about some new thing. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Well surely, he says, I'm going to tell you about spiritual gifts and I wouldn't, you, wouldn't have you to be ignorant about it. Would you say I thought he was going to talk about the one body. So he is. But he's going to talk about one body to illustrate the diversity of gifts that all come from one spirit. Could you have a better figure to illustrate diversity in unity? See, the members of the body are all functioning. The eye sees. The ear hears. The hands feel. And yet they're all doing their different parts, but they're all actuated by one spirit. That is to say, the spirit of man that's in him. So surely the Apostle could use the figure of a human body without speaking about the one body of Christ which hadn't been revealed and which has a different characteristic about it as you'll see presently. So let's look at this 1 Corinthians 12 and see how he goes on to use it. And the very first thing he says is, verse 2, what's this got to do with the church which is the body of Christ? Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto those dumb idols even as you were led. Well, what's he put that in for? Why, because he's talking about spiritual gifts. And he said, you, before ever you were converted, you had your soothsayers and your prophets and your priestesses and you had all these uh, manifestations of supernatural powers and you were led away to idolatry with it. Now he said, becoming Christians, you've got another gift from another spirit and it's got other characteristics. Wherefore? I give you to understand. Do mark this. I give you to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus anathema. What's that got to do with the idea that the church is the body of Christ? He says, no, I'm talking about supernatural gifts and some of them are evil and some of them are from God. And you know, one of these days the church, as we call it, is going to be trapped because the man of sin, the son of perdition, is going to exhibit signs, wonders and miracles. But the scripture slips in the word false or lying But there'll be miracles right enough. So miracles don't prove it comes from God. Miracles are only a a, a tremendous power that's seeking to influence your mind. And there are evil ones as well as good ones. So he's he's elaborating that. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but or the Holy Ghost. Now if that is taken out of its context. You could prove it to be wrong. I could go up to a man in the street who doesn't believe God at all. I say, look, you cannot say this. You cannot say that Jesus is Lord. He could. The man who set these words up in type in the preachers might have been a blasphemer for all I know, but he could set them up. But no man can say that Jesus is Lord who is standing up in a meeting and pur- purporting to speak by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's forbidden. That's impossible. So, the first epistle of John says, try the spirits. How are you going to do that? Any spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, but is a spirit of Antichrist. I think I've said enough to say in these opening verses of 1 Corinthians 12, you're dealing with spiritual gifts, aren't I? What a peculiar thing to have to emphasize what the Apostle has said so plainly. So now we'll go on and let him speak. Now is it? Have you put that on one side? Now, verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. So he's stressing now, however diverse these gifts of the spirit may be, they all come from one source. Because, you see, he was going to rebuke them a little bit. He said, I know, I know to be able to possess certain gifts puts you in prominence in the meeting, if you can stand up and speak in an unknown tongue, or if you can heal somebody of disease. But he said there are other parts of the ministry of the Spirit which are not spectacular, but they're all performing their duty, otherwise the body wouldn't function. So he said, don't forget, whether you've got a lowly gift or whether you've got a spectacular gift, it all comes from the self-same spirit, and neither you nor the other one could work at all unless God permitted. But, he said, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given for this purpose, to profit with all. To profit with all. And you remember how the Apostle said uh, that with regard to the gift of tongues, he said, well, I speak more tongues than you all, but he said, I'd rather speak five words to edification than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. So, one of the tests of our ministry is, does it profit? Or does it puff up? And so he says, you've got to watch that. Now then, he's going to give a a series now of the different ways in which these people who were baptised by the Spirit into this calling were able to manifest these different diverse gifts. Verse 8, for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Well, that was a gift, if I want to know a thing, I've got to turn up the references. And I have to say, oh, I don't know about that. I look up the encyclopedia. I've got no special gift of knowledge. But these people at that time, they had a gift of knowledge, given to them straight away without looking at books. And you know how the Apostle at the end of chapter 13, after he's spoken about the great gift of love, he touches upon these gifts. He says, chapter 8, love never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Now that doesn't mean to say that the prophet Isaiah is not going to be fulfilled. But whether there be gifts of prophecy, all they're going to come to an end. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Well if that means nobody's going to speak after this, well what am I doing? But gift of tongues, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. But we have got some knowledge left, so it's not dealing with ordinary knowledge. For now he says, I'll tell you, we know in part, just partially, We prophesy in part, partially. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is partial shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So he says, you see, all this boasting in supernatural gifts is like a child boasting, but he said, a full-grown man may grow out of them. The apostle said, when that which is perfect is come, these things won't be necessary. I don't know whether he was anticipating the present dispensation, but we've reached a position of a full-grown man. And if so, we put away childish things. He says, you don't need these things after a bit. This was only for the beginning. And if you take it a stage further, the, the God said that he was going to provoke the people of Israel to jealousy. With people of stammering lips will I provoke you to jealousy. I'm going to give the gifts that belong to you, Israel, to these Gentiles who never knew me once, that you may wake up and see that you are losing your position. But they weren't provoked. And they went out into their blindness. And when Israel went into their blindness, supernatural gifts ceased as a general uh, exhibition of God's presence in the church. And the Apostle Paul, who could lay his hands on a sick man and cure him, or send a handkerchief from his body and heal him, he was sorry that he left behind Epaphroditus sick and he sent a prescription to his son Timothy, you see. Are you going to accuse the Apostle Paul of having little faith? The dispensation had changed. Supernatural gifts belonged to the period starting with Pentecost. So that an unsaved man offered money to have the power to give the gift to the Holy Spirit. He could see something happening. We come back to 1 Corinthians 12 to pick it up again the stage further. He gives all these various gifts. Verse 9, To another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the self same Spirit divide into every man severally as he will. So we're back again that it's one spirit, however diverse these gifts were. Now he says, our version says, for as the body, well this is, i put on the top of this chart that um, the word could be better translated. Now, just as the body, what body? Well any human body, just as the body is one, and hath many members. And all the members of that one body, being many, are one, so also is Christ. Now, what's he mean by that? Lift that word out, so also is Christ. You saw that must mean our Saviour. But in what way is Christ mentioned here? A body with many members. So also, don't you see, that if we were reading the original, we should read, so also is the anointed. And the anointed, as these people who have got all this anointing. So, First Epistle of John says, you have the anointing. You have no need to teach you anything. This is a supernatural. So also is the anointed company. It's not referring to our Saviour at all. It's referring to the anointed company who have got this great measure of gifts. He says, for by one spirit are we all baptised into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit does that bring anything to your mind that's already written in 1 Corinthians? Let's turn back to chapter 10 of the same if It's written to the same people. Moreover, brethren, I would not have ye that ye should be ignorant, as that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink, here, I'm having the same thing said again in this verse in chapter 12, 13. We are made to drink into one spirit. We will be baptised into one body. But he's already told them that he's referring to that baptism that took place at the Red Sea when they were baptised into Moses. And then when they were baptised into Moses and went out into the wilderness, they had spiritual drink and these other manifestations. But no no proof about the mystery which hadn't been revealed, that's reading into the scriptures what hadn't even been made known at this time. Well, we turn over and look a little bit further, he reminds these people that the body is not one member, but many. And we want to remind ourselves of that too, friends. It's so easy for us to criticise somebody else because they're not doing what we think is right. I'm always thankful when I hear our brother Inberg when he takes the prayer on the Sunday morning. Not only asking God for me, who's going to be up in this pulpit, but thanking God for somebody else who sees to it that I get up in the morning in time, I've got a clean pair of socks on and have something to have me breakfast before I come out. And that's just as much of the service i God as standing up here, friends. When I spoke to the friend who has become the caretaker of this chapel, I said to him, look friend, you are not serving me. We are both serving the Lord. I can't do your work no want to. You can't do mine. Let's do it in that spirit. Don't you see? You and I are all members of one body in that sense. Never mind about the body of Christ in Ephesians. We are all believers belonging to the same Lord. And to each one of us he's given something to do. Now he says, what an idiotic thing to simply stress one thing. He, he raises the question. He says um, in this 12th chapter... Look, if the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? My handwriting is bad enough, friends, because I look at it sometimes and I wonder what I've put down to say to you. But if I wrote with me foot, well, it would look ten times worse, wouldn't it? But is the foot going to say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not a member? Well how would I get here? If the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, it's would like Wonder Wonderland coming up now, isn't it? Where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Ah, but now look. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it has pleased him. Now look right down the page, because I'm coming back again. Verse 28. Verse 18. Now hath God set the members, Verse 28, God hath set some in the church. What are these members? Well, they're gifts. First apostles, secondary prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues and so on. So you see, God hath set the members. God hath set these miraculous gifts. So we go back again to verse 18. Verse 19 says, if they were all one member, where were the body? And now are they many members yet, but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honourable, Now, if you're not careful, you see, no, no, brother, I believe this is the body of Christ of Ephesians. Well, in the body of Christ there are uncomely parts and dishonorable members. Oh, goodness me, where are we now? And then you see, he says, in this body there's the eye and the ear, but I thought Christ was the head of the church. So you're mixing it up terribly badly by trying to bring into 1 Corinthians 12 what had not been revealed. So he says, verse 24. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honour to that part which lacked. And so he goes on and finally winds it all up by saying, verse, chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not loved by nothing, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, and have not loved it me nothing. Oh, he's wiping out this idea that because you happen to have this special supernatural gift, you've got the ultimate and the climax. He said, oh no, they're given for a purpose. But there's something beyond. Now abide. These are passing. Now abide faith, hope, love. These three. And the greatest of these is love. Well now, we'll turn the page because our time will permit us to ne- take the negative all the time. We'll come to the positive. The epistle to the Ephesians is the first of Paul's prison epistles. And in that epistle, he brings before us the one body in a new aspect. Shall we look at chapter 1 And verse 23, this is introduced by the prayer that we should know what is the hope and what is the riches and what is the power. And this power is that which was wrought in Christ, verse 20, 20, set him at his own right hand and above all principality and power. So here's a position where Christ is now occupying as the head of this body, the church. And verse 22, hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things. Now one day that's going to be true in the vast sense, head over all. But at the moment, Christ is not manifestly head over all things, but he's head over all things to the church with an anticipation of what's coming. In the Epistle to the Colossians, in this calling, Christ is all and in all. But that is in true universally. There are still those who take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. But the church is God's little witness now of what is coming. So he's head over all things to the church which is his body. See, that's the character. That church which is his body. And look at its title. This body is said to be the fullness of him that fitteth everything. The fullness of him that fitteth all in all. All this is the looking forward to our destiny. You see, what you want to remember, I think, is that the the title body is a figure now. But it's not going to be called the body of Christ when we're all there. When we're all there, we shall be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What that means, God alone will have to explain to us. But you can see its vastness. You see, there never has existed on the earth, at any one time, the complete body of Christ, have they? Because nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul was speaking to some, and he was one of the members of the body of Christ. And ever since, they've lived and died and lived and died, there's only been a little handful of us at any time. So there's never been the one body complete anywhere. So the one body is a little picture down here of the unity of these members with their living head, anticipating that they will all be there, and it won't be head and body then. It will be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, now, we'll look again at the next reference in chapter 2. Now, in chapter 2, he calls attention to the fact that these Ephesian believers, oh, you know, there's a big hullabaloo as to whether Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus or whether it wasn't, as though that matters to us. If it wasn't written to us, we might as well not read it, might we? But here's the ones to whom it's written, not the word Ephesus or not the word Colossae or Philippi, but Verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ. That's you, that's me. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Aliens. And strangers from the covenants of promise. What covenant did God make with my fathers? What promises did he give them like he gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Well, I don't know. Got no record. In fact, I don't know who my fathers were. I don't know where I came from. As far as I go back, my ancestors came from the West of England, Exeter. But where did they come from when they got to Exeter? I don't know. I've got a happy name for my ministry. My name Welsh means a foreigner. Good, isn't it? That's me, an outsider, having no hope for without God in the world. But now is a change, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you were sometimes afar off and made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Who hath made, now put thee in front of the word both, every time. the both, it's some particular both that's in view. He hath made thee both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What was the middle wall of partition between us? That was something in the temple that separated the Gentile from the Jew. This is not separating man from God. If you had lived in Jerusalem at the time when Paul was writing, you could have gone up to the temple at Jerusalem and gone into the outer court, but you would have seen a, ba- a barrier, and you would have seen an inscription, and the inscription read, no one being a foreigner can pass this barrier, whoever does so uh, will be responsible for the death which will immediately ensue. And you can see that inscription of this very day in the offices of the, of the Palestine Exploration Fund. They've got the original there. So here was a period when the Gentile was an outsider and the Jew could go in. Oh he says, Now in this calling there's neither Jew nor Gentile bond or free, they're all gone. The middle war, the petition's been broken down, and the enmity has been destroyed. To making him himself a one new man, so making peace. Now verse sixteen and that he might reconcile the both thee both in one body unto God by the cross. So, the both that were once at loggerheads at enmity have had the middle war that divided and destroyed and have become one body. Now, in this one body, the Gentile can't look at the Jew and say, you're a Jew. And the Jew can't look at the Gentile and say, you're a Gentile, because that's been obliterated. That difference is gone. I don't know whether you know anything about beekeeping. I know that there's a great reason for that it isn't all honey. I know that right now. But I do know this. That in the garden, you have, you have uh, say, two hives standing together. And you feel the time has come to uh, divide them up and unite them. But what are you going to do? Because if one goes into the other hive, there'd be an awful fight and they'd be killing one another. So if you know the time has come the bees are going out on their flight, you take this hive quickly up that end of the garden. These are all Jews, you see. You take them up there. And you take this hive of Gentile bees up the end, see? And then in the middle, just in between the two, you put a brand new hive with new cone and the Jews and the Gentile bees all come back and they they say, "Ah, oh, this, this doesn't seem to be mine and this, is, no, this doesn't need to be mine. So you've broken down the middle wall of all partition and they all have one hive, one queen, and they go on properly. It's created a new hive, created a new condition. That's where we come in. We're neither Jews nor Gentiles for the time being in that sense. It's one new man, reconciled as one body. Now that is brought out in chapter 3, verse 6. I've got to pick on these things, leaving their context to a large extent. Chapter 3, verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister. Now in that verse 6, the preposition together with comes three times. You know the Greek sun or su or uh, many different ways it may be written means together with. Well, now some have attempted to translate this in the, to get three times. They put it this way: that the Gentiles should be joint heirs; that they should be. And they say, "Are you going to say the joint body?" So that's the rub, friends. That's so difficult. A joint body. You see, the essence of one body is it's got a lot of members, isn't it? But he says, ah, yes, but this is something which I can't illustrate from the ordinary human affairs. This is a body in which every member is absolutely on perfect equality. Well, there's never been seen one like that on earth, friends, but this is God's creation. So it's a very peculiar construction. You do you do know about the man who went to the zoo and had a good long look at the hippopotamus and finally he said, there ain't no such thing. Well, there isn't anything like this on earth, friends. A body of people in which everybody is perfectly equal. But in Christ, this company is. All those distinctions are obliterated that once called the factions and the feuds. So there we have that emphasis. So now in chapter four, chapter four, where we turn from the doctrine to the practice, he says now to walk worthy, You've got to hold fast certain things. Whatever else you neglect, remember this. You're to endeavour, verse 3. You're to be diligent. You're to make it your business, whichever way you translate it. It's the word study to show thyself approved under God in Timothy. Study, endeavour. It's a real purpose in front of you. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, what is this unity of the Spirit? Well, it's one that man hasn't made. It's already made. When you look back again and see what terms we find that are echoed in this chapter 4, look back again to chapter 2. Verse 16. That he might reconcile the both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh, For through him we, the both, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. There we've got terms already that are waiting for us in chapter 4. One Spirit, the Father, one body. So now he says, I'll bring them all together. Here's the unity of the Spirit, verse 4, chapter 4. There is one body. That's in chapter 2. There is one Spirit. That's in chapter 2. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling. That's in chapter 1. One Lord. One faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, the Father is already there. So the unity of the Spirit is not what you make, but what has been made and you have to keep guard, watch over it. It's more than life itself. This is vital. Whatever else you don't do, as members of the body of Christ, remember that all the rest of the practice that follows in chapter four is null and void if you miss this out. This is the citadel, this is the centre. You'll have people telling you that you ought to be running, say, an evangelistic campaign. And say, right, somebody's got to do it. But you haven't got to take your orders from anybody. You've got to say to yourself, but my calling is here, and the first thing I've got to safeguard that. And if that goes, all the rest will be in vain. If that's retained, the rest will follow. So we have the one body mentioned here. One body. It's the very first thing that's mentioned in the unity of the spirit. You might have thought one God and Father was first. You might have thought the one Lord would have been first. You might have thought the one spirit would have been first, wouldn't you? That one body. If you're wrong there, all the rest is waiting for you. If you're already a member of that one body on equal terms, then you have one spirit and one hope and one see, it all goes together. Well then we come to the further practice in chapter 5 of this Uh, this uh, same thought of the body entering into everyday life. It speaks about husbands and wives. If we start reading verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And some people think, well, that's rather strange to have to tell a wife to do that. But they forget to read verse 21. (coughs) Submitting yourselves one to another. Well, if submitting means being abject and subject, well, what would you keep on bobbing down a bit lower than the other one? What would you do? How could you submit one to another? You see, the word submit is the word that means take your rank, take your rank. Now, Lord, I don't know why you made me an admiral or a general or a lieutenant or a sergeant. I'm not worthy of any of it, but if you've given me that, I must do it. It doesn't say the husband always oh, superior. And the wife is inferior. doesn't say that a bit. It says, look, you've got a responsibility as head, and you've got a responsibility as the neck that turns there. You know, when the head nods, the, the neck has to do the nodding. You know that, don't you? Or well, if you're not married, you know that's well enough. And if you guess, you see, the head's doing the nodding and saying yes and no, but it's the neck that's doing it. But then the neck couldn't do that unless the head gave it permission, you see. So there's that figure coming out again. The head and the body, and all working together. So he says, you're all submitting yourselves one to another according to the rank that God has given you. Now wives, you submit yourself to your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You know, this is beginning to make family life <coughs> a little bit more sacred. I remember, I go back many years and I said to the wife, I said, you know, waiting 12 years to get married was a pretty good test for us, but somehow I'm rather glad that when we do enter into that state, we've reached this, that we can say in our home life, we can manifest the church which is the body of Christ with Christ as the head, For it's given us this statement here. So we go on. Husbands, love your wives. Well, would you think that the Bible needed to say that? You'd say, well, that's natural, isn't it? Oh, but this is unnatural, this bit. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. My, that's a standard, isn't it, friends? I don't think we'd be very proud of ourselves, can we, when we read this? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it, to himself for glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, wrinkle. I wonder how many wrinkles wives have had brought about by husbands not loving their wives according to this. We can only guess, can't we? So ought men to love the wives as their own bodies. Here it comes back again, see? They are a unity, they are one, in this sense. Well now, time will not permit us to go on. I want to turn the page to the epistle to the Colossians, just to get one passage out of that before we finish. And then I must leave it with you. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, The one in whom we have redemption, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head. Now all that is implying what a head means. Think of it. He is the head of the body, the church. So he steps from this universal creation of things in heaven and earth to say, and that one is the head of which you are a member of the body. Who is the beginning? the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, whether in physical creation or spiritual, he might have the preeminence. And that is one of the essential features with regard to Christ, that he must have the preeminence. And so we finish by looking at chapter 3, verse 15. This is a little simple personal note at the end. He says in verse 14, above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfectness, we had the bond of peace in Ephesians, we have the bond of perfectness here. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, and the word rule is to act the umpire, the one who decides all the time the problems. To the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. You are called in one body that the peace of God should be the umpire, that Christ should be the head, that you should be fellow members one with another, and that is the glorious title of this particular church. Now, we've not lost anything because we don't take to ourselves 1 Corinthians 12 with all its gifts and miracles and tongues and signs that belong to that day. We're living in a day when there are no miracles, evidential miracles, tongues, signs, prophecies and so on. If I were to lay my hands on you, wouldn't you do a scrap of good? That doesn't belong to my calling, but I've not lost anything. What Christ can be to me is all it all. His will is sufficient. We are members one of another on equal terms, each one of us having our own function, but every one of us belonging to him. I trust that we may now take up this subject, I've I've just dealt with it as best I could in our limited time, we may take up this subject and pursue it further, weighing every possible uh, text that bears upon it, and so come to the knowledge and the enjoyment of this high and wonderful calling with no responsibility except a responsibility unto the Lord, recognising no head except the Lord, and recognising the claims upon us of every member of his body.